Um, hey, I want you guys to do something. Uh, next time you guys go to Meyer, next time you go to Meyer, you online, you guys can do this too. Uh, there's a lady there that as you walk in the door, she's got like a little device or a little counter. She's like counting how many people come in and how many people leave. Have you guys ever noticed this person? The, the greeting person saying hi, she's the one kind of clicking in. So next time you go, I want you to walk in and then I want you to turn around and walk out. Then turn around and walk back in and see how many times it takes until she gets really angry with you, okay? <laughs> so, no, it's good to have you guys here. My name is Josh, lead pastor here. It's just really, really great to be with you, whether you're online in a viewing room or here in this room. Um, I hope you guys are ready for today. Uh, today is going to be great. Uh, so we're continuing in week two of a series that we started last week uh, called Raising Hell. And the whole desire and goal of this series is that we'd get fired up about the doctrine of hell. And it sounds strange, right, to get excited about a doctrine like this, but anytime we can declare um, God's word, we should get excited about that. And the doctrine of hell is not a scary doctrine, or it shouldn't be something that we're fearful of, uh, because we believe that it teaches us about God's justice, about God's grace, right, and about God's salvation. And so we want to we become more aware of this doctrine, because here's what I want to challenge, and here's why we're doing this in this season uh, you might be wondering, like, why in 2020, why in August of 2020 are we doing this? And here's why. Um, it's easy to get distracted, right? It's easy to get distracted by political, uh, you know, conversation, by economic concerns. I want to challenge us, as if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to challenge you that we would keep our perspective in the right places, right? It's, it's really, perspective is really, really important. Now, before I get too far into things, I want to distract you for a second with this backpack, uh, this backpack has the potential to change someone's eternal destiny. And I'll tell you about that at the end of the service today. Leave that cliffhanger. Is that a cliffhanger? Is that okay? I'm going to make it really awkward. I'm going to spend some time opening up this backpack and uh, getting out my, my notes for today. Okay, why would anyone believe in hell, right? It seems really unfair, seems really unkind. Why would anyone believe that this doctrine, why would anyone believe that a loving God uh, would send someone to hell? It's an important question. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, I love this quote. This quote is really, this ties in, ties in what we talked about last week. He said this, he said, hell is the greatest compliment God has ever paid to the dignity of human freedom. See, last week we talked about the fact that the concept or doctrine of hell is a good thing in, the w in, in this way, that we want to live in a world where God judges sin. You and I don't want to live in a world where someone cuts you off in traffic. Like, don't you all just secretly love when someone speeds past you on the highway and a little ways down the highway, they're sitting over on the side of the road with a police car behind them. Like, there's something inside of us that goes like, oh, yeah, that was awesome. Or like, when someone cuts you off, you're like, where are, where are the police now? Like, I want somebody here to bring justice to what's going on. And so uh, we want to live in a world where God judges sin. We often just don't want it to be our own sin. We want it to be everyone else's and not ours. Let me give you a couple scenarios, and you tell me which is the better scenario. So I'm a dad. I've got three daughters. And um, there's two different ways that I could approach this. I could, as a parent, I could demand my kids do every single thing. Like, I could tell them exactly what to do for every single situation, or I could give them choices. Which one's more gracious and more loving? To give them choices, right? 
And so uh, my friend Nate Tunis and I, we released a podcast this past week. You can find it on our church's website. But in there, we talked about our last series, which was Imago Day, And we asked the question, why would God allow the fall? Like if God knew that Adam was going, Adam and Eve were going to sin, why would he allow that? And the main, one of the main answers to the question is that God desires relationship. Relationship requires free will, right? So a loving dad is going to allow his kids to make some choices. There's going to be some consequences to those choices. Um, also, uh, we might ask, or I'll give you another scenario. Um, or if I, let, if I let my kids do whatever they want, if they got to stay up as late as they wanted, if they got to eat whatever they wanted, if they got to do whatever they want to anybody, if they could say whatever they wanted, can you imagine like my kids like just cussing up a storm like, Dad, you, it'd be hard, it's hard to picture that a little bit. I get angry thinking about it. But if I let them do whatever they want without any kind of correction, is that loving and gracious? It's not, right? It's not. And so even though we may struggle at times or people may struggle with this concept of hell, we have to understand that it's a loving God that says there are consequences, there are punishment for our sins. But he also says, and there's a way to be saved. I love this quote, uh, John Hanna said, no one who is ever in hell will be able to say to God, you put me here. And no one who is in heaven will ever be able to say, I put myself here. The title of today's message is, if hell is real, then why do I hate to admit it? If this is real, why do I have such a hard time admitting that this is real? Um, I'll give you a couple more quotes. These are great. Um, A.W. Tozer said, the vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become the deadly opiate for the consciences of millions. That's a mouthful. It's like, wow, this idea that a loving God could never send someone to hell, he says, has become a deadly opiate to, to calm the comfort the, the consciences of millions of people. People have convinced themselves God would never do this. That's a dangerous game to play. Martin Luther of the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago said, what hell is, we, don't, we know not. Only this we know, there is such a sure and certain place. Uh, Ben Franklin, not really known for his theological (laughs) statements, but you guys would recognize the statement that there are two sure things in life. What are they? Death and taxes. Death and taxes. The writer of Hebrews said something very similar, not the taxes part. He said, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was crucified once to take away the sins of many. And after, he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Amen? Uh, Perspective is huge. Last summer, I got to take a sabbatical. I'm so grateful for the time of rest. One of the greatest gifts that allowed me was perspective. I want to encourage you, if you haven't recently, get away, right? Get away from technology. Get away from the constant stream of news and get some perspective. Get some perspective. Um, My mom and dad recently, July 31st, celebrated their 55th wedding anniversary. This is a picture of my parents on the screen. Their 55th wedding anniversary. Isn't that awesome? And you're you're looking at them like they're like, like, 
like they don't exist, right? Like they're, they're a, a fairy tale, but it's real. People can be married this long, and we celebrate that with them. I was texting my parents and uh, talked with them on, the, on their anniversary, and they were kind of joking and kind of, they thought it was humorous because they found themselves um, kind of debating and arguing about uh, something they were doing at the house. And they kind of chuckled to themselves, and they realized that, well, basically, so my dad was saying, like, okay, this is how we did this. As in our family growing up, this is how we did this. My mom was like, well, no, this is how we did this growing up in our family. And they started kind of laughing to themselves because they realized, wait, we've been together for 55 years, <laughs> right? And we were only in our homes for, like, you know, 17, 18 years. Like, we got so much more history together than we ever had uh, before. But I texted my dad on their anniversary. I said, hey, congratulations on 55 years. And this was his wise response back to me. He said, 55 years goes by really fast. And you may not think it now, you may not realize it now, especially if you're young, but life goes by like that. And as you get older, the older you get, the faster it goes. And our lives, Scripture says, are but a vapor. Like they are gone fast. So that's why this series is so important. Because this season that we're in and this life that we live is short, but eternity is long. Amen, church? Like, this matters, and I want to draw our attention to perspective. And you know what? Before you know it, 2020 will be done. Yeah, amen, right? Like, let's get it in the books. Let's move on. I'm already, like, thinking about 2021, right? But it will be over before you know it. And God is saying, pay attention to these things that matter for eternity. So here's the big idea for today. You can write this down. Here's, everything I'm going to say is revolving around this idea that I want to challenge you to be the answer to someone's prayer. Be the answer to someone's prayer. And here's what I mean by that. Someone is praying right now, and they need hope. Someone is crying out right now. Someone is praying for a loved one who doesn't know Jesus. And we have the opportunity, you and I, to be the answer to someone's prayers. So this series that we're doing is not really about hell. It's called Raising Hell. It's a fun title. I didn't get to say that word growing up, so I get to say it a lot right now as a pastor that kind of thing. The series is really not about that. It's about that, but it's really about sharing our faith. It's really about evangelism. It's really about we need to stay focused on why we're here. I'm trying to draw us together as the body of Christ, not to be divided by, by political parties or by mask or no mask or virus or no virus, but to pull us together based on the mission that Jesus has given to us. Amen, church? Like That's what we should be focusing on in this season. So I'm going to share a passage of scripture with you from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. You can open your, up, your, up your Bibles to that. It's going to be on the screen. We're going to just uh, highlight some things from this and then draw some application. So here's what it says. All the stuff we've been talking about, you'll see in this verse. The very first phrase says, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. And everybody said, Amen. Like, we're thankful. Like, God is just. He's going to pay back the wrong that people have done to us. And he will give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. And he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with an everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord for the glory of his might. 
So we don't have to guess and wonder what Scripture teaches about this idea, this doctrine of hell. It's clear. It's clear. So I want you to highlight a couple phrases so we can grasp what Paul is saying. The first phrase is that God is just. Our spiritually tolerant culture has indoctrinated us to believe that God is love and that he is only love. See, it's possible for God to be lots of things at the same exact time. So when we say God is love, that doesn't mean that he's nothing else. (laughs) God is love and God is a God of justice. Okay, while it's true God is love, he is equally a God of justice. Here's the second phrase. It says that God is just, and the further down the passage it says that he will punish. Because God is a God of justice, he is just as concerned with inflicting judgment upon his creation when it sins as he is with loving it. Does that make sense? He is just as concerned as justice as he is. We, we, sing, we love to sing songs about the love of God. Can you imagine a song about the justice of God? <laughs> like, we don't sing many worship songs about the wrath and justice, with good reason, probably. But God is just as much of God of justice as he is a God of love. Next phrase is this, those who don't know God or obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So who will this just God punish? It's very clear. He will punish those who've offended God by his holy nature by their sin and failed to respond to his gracious offer of forgiveness through Jesus. Um, the current estimates, uh, what would you guys say? Does anybody know? Um, I love stats. I love numbers. Uh, what is the current, like not exact numbers, but what's the rough estimate of the world's population right now? Yeah, seven. We're going to round up to eight. Close. It's probably like 7.4, 7.5 billion. By the end of the service today, it'd be about 8 billion. We'll just say roughly. No, not really that. It doesn't go that fast. But about 8 billion people roughly in the world. And this is encouraging. This next part is encouraging. About a third of the world's population are adherents to Christianity. A third of the world's population. So about 2.5 billion people on the planet are followers of Jesus. Isn't that cool? You may feel like you're the only one at your workplace, but here's a newsflash for us here in America. There's the rest of the world, <laughs> and there's a lot of people who follow Jesus in the, rest, in the whole world. Isn't that cool? Almost 2.5 billion people. The U.S.'s population is about 330 million. So about 10 times, roughly, about 10 times the population of the United States of America worldwide are followers of Jesus. Isn't that cool? But what that means, though, is that there's about 5 billion in the world who are not followers of Jesus. And what does that mean? That they are headed toward an eternity apart from God if they don't put their faith and trust in Jesus. So here's a question for you. Um, does that affect us, right? Does that affect us because it should? Here's the next couple of phrases, that they will be punished with everlasting destruction. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction. God will punish them with eternal pain and hopelessness and meaninglessness and despair. Last phrase is that they'll be shut out from the presence of the Lord. So the worst part about it, yeah, exactly, the worst part about this tragedy is that that God will withdraw his presence and they will be without the presence of God. Uh, A few years ago, um, you guys may have heard of the uh, the comedian and magician group called Penn and Teller. 
uh, Penn Gillette and Raymond Teller. Somebody filled me in between services of their, their full names. Uh, this duo, uh, and Teller, Penn, the, the tallest one, uh, he's a very outspoken atheist. And, but he tells a story a few years ago and, uh, about a man who came up to him after one of his shows. And this man w- waited politely in line with everybody else. And this man had in his hand a pocket New Testament. And he kind of waited his turn and he talked with, with, with Penn. And he said, hey, I, I don't know you, you know, personally, but um, I felt like I was supposed to give this to you. And I appreciate your shows. And they just had this really great conversation. So Penn actually created a video and he posted it online of how much this impacted him. He said, no, I'm still, I'm still an atheist, but I just want you to know that I feel like this is a good person. He was genuine. He looked me in the eye. He wasn't weird, right? He was normal. <laughs> and he, and he, he said this quote in this video. Here's what he said. This is powerful. He said, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. A proselytize is a fancy word for share your faith. He said, this is Penn. He said, I don't d- respect people who don't share their faith. If you believe there is a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell, and you think it's not worth telling them this because it will make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate someone not to, to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Isn't that powerful? He even recognized, you know what, if this is what you believe, you better share it. You better tell people about it. And it's where many of us find ourselves is that we're kind of stuck in the middle going, yeah, I believe this, but I just don't want to talk about it. And there's a couple of reasons for that. But here's a powerful question before we get into it. How does a Christian read what the Bible teaches about hell and then turn around and either not believe it or not tell other people about it? I want to give you two main reasons why this happens. The first reason is this, is that non-Christians make us feel, uh, they make us feel dumb, they make us feel stupid. Um, Jesus warned that if we truly believe what he taught and live the life that he calls us to live, the non-Christians around us will not accept us, right? If, if there was a pamphlet for Christianity, it would say, want to be hated by others? Join, like that's not a very like, great pep talk, but that's what Jesus warned us. He said, if you follow this, people will not like you. Here's some, here's some quotes from Jesus himself. He said, you will be hated by everyone because of me. Sign right here. Now, here we go. He warned us. Next one, he says, you will be hated by all nations because of me. John wrote this. Um, Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? But he's, he's making it clear to us, hey, you have to just be aware that this is not going to line up with what everyone thinks you should be doing or believing or accepting. The truth is, this kind of social pressure has existed since the first century. Um, in 1857, archaeologists discovered a drawing that had been scratched onto the wall of an army guard room on Palatine Hill, which is near uh, Circus Martius, or Maximus in Rome. It's called the Alex, uh, Aleximanos Graffito. Uh, it gives us an example of the negative social pressure that disciples of Jesus faced well into the third century. And the exact details around how this creation came about, we don't know, but here's what we do know. There was a man named Aleximanos, um, and he was a Roman guard stationed in Rome. 
The soldiers around him knew that he was a Christian. And at some point, it appears that one of his fellow guards, guards grabbed a knife and scratched this picture on the wall of the guard room. This is basically a first century bathroom graffiti. All right? This is, you know, for a good time, call this number. This is what this was in the first century. The details of the picture you can't see very well, so here's a sketch of it. On the left stands a man with his arm raised in the air as if praying or worshiping. At the top of the drawing is a cross. Hanging on the cross is a crucified man with the head of a donkey. Scratched at the bottom in Greek are these words, Ale, Xamenos, Sabete, Theon. Translation, Alexamanos worships his God. They were making fun of him for being a follower of Jesus. See, this is nothing new, right? But if hell is real, we're going to have to push through this kind of thing and not be embarrassed about the gospel. We have to care more about what God thinks of us and less about what people think of us. If we're going to be the answer to someone's prayers, we have to be bold. Paul declared in Romans 1, I love this verse, he, Paul, standing in Rome, or writing to the Romans, says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Can you guys just say that with me? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. See, we don't have to be embarrassed about Jesus or the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to bring salvation to many. So that's the first reason is, We'll be embarrassed because other people, especially non-Christians, make us feel like we're weird because we believe these things. Number two is this, is that sometimes other Christians will try to stop us from believing in hell. Now, it won't be as overt as that. It won't be as clear like, hey, don't believe that. But by the things that people teach, by the things that people say, they'll make us feel less than for believing these things. While Jesus was alive, he warned his disciples that many false prophets and many false teachers would appear to deceive many people. Uh, very shortly after the resurrection and after the early church was born, these words became reality because as they were spreading the gospel in the Mediterranean world, all kinds of, of people cropped up that were trying to lead people away from Orthodox Christianity. Um, the presence of these teachers actually sparked a lot of the writings of the New Testament. One of the authors of one of the books in the New Testament, his name is Jude, uh, he's one of the brothers of Jesus, actually wrote the book of Jude. They didn't get super creative in their titles. Uh, so Jude wrote the book of Jude, brother of Jesus, and he writes this to be distributed to Christians to warn them about false teachers. He says this in Jude uh, verses 3 and 4, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago are se have secretly slipped in among you. So he's saying there's people who call themselves Christians, and they are in your midst, they are in your churches, they are in your, your groups, and they say that they follow Jesus, but they're teaching you things that are not from God. Does this make sense? You have to be wise, you have to be careful. You have to contend for the faith. Other apostles and church leaders sent similar warnings to the churches that they helped oversee. Uh, Peter wrote this, There will be false teachers among you, and they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. 
The writer of Hebrews said, do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. So basically he's saying, don't, re- don't believe everything you read on the internet, is what he said. Uh, the writer John says, see, what, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. The apostles use a lot of adjectives for false teachers. Here's some of the, the adjectives. Cunning, crafty, deceitful schemers, conceited and understanding nothing, detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good, rebellious, mere talkers and deceivers, grumblers, fault finders, and flatterers, exploiters and seducers. We can maybe put politicians. You know, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, that was bad. We can scratch that from the live stream. No, we can't really do that. Can't really do that. No, there's good politicians. There's bad, bad politicians. All right, good. I just feel like I had to say that. <laughs> thanks, thanks for the nervous laughter, Heather. All right. So <laughs> false teachers, false teachers are not just bearded TV evangelists that we see asking for money. Right? False teachers are anybody who teaches something contrary to the word of God. Right? It could be somebody that you know and love and trust, but if they're trying to convince you about something that is not what we see in God's word, then they're a false teacher in that sense. We have to stay focused on what God sets for us. So the Bible gives a lot of clear advice about how to interact with false teachers. Here's some things that it says. 1 Timothy 1.3 says, Command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. 1 Timothy 6.20, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Philippians 1.16, defend the gospel. Titus 1.9, refute those who oppose it. 2 Thessalonians 2.15, stand firm. 1 Timothy 1.18, fight the battle well. Fight the battle well. So I told you a few minutes ago that this backpack... Uh, can change someone's eternal destiny. So the, for the past uh, eight years or so, we've had the opportunity as a church to um, collect backpacks and put school supplies in them. What we do with it is we give them to local schools and they distribute them to their students. So over the course of these years, we've given away maybe even close to a thousand backpacks. It's been great to be able to bless and encourage other people. And so um, what I want to encourage you, the, the deadline to, to return these was today. So some of you are like, oh, shoot, I forgot. Uh, if you have a backpack, bring it in. We're going to extend this one more week uh, because we still have some backpacks left. Our goal this year is 120 backpacks. And uh, last year, I think we did slightly over 100. We have about 30, well, I'm not sure after the, the last service. We still have some backpacks left, probably about 30 backpacks left. And here's what I want to challenge. I know that the fall is uncertain. We don't know what's happening with schools and all this, but there's no reason why this year of all years we should be giving fewer backpacks away than we did last year, all right? We, if, so if you already took a backpack, take more backpacks. Take five, all right? Uh, if you're single, take a backpack. If you're a student, take a backpack. What you do is you take the backpack with you, and in the, poc- the pocket of it or somewhere in it, I think it's in here, you can go on a scavenger hunt. And uh, y- here's a list of supplies right here. You don't have to buy all these. What my family does is we we allocate uh, $10 per backpack. So we give each of our kids a backpack, and here's $10. They go to the dollar store or wherever. They fill it up as much as they can, and they put all those items. You have to buy all the items. You can buy whatever you want to uh, from this list to put in there. And then you bring that back, and we'll give them to local public schools, and they pass them out to kids. And that could give some kid hope. That could help communicate to somebody 
Like, hey, somebody cares. Like somebody, and maybe it's for somebody, maybe somebody is praying for, I don't know how I'm going to have the resources I need um, to, to do school, whether it's at home, online, or whether it's in person, they need resources. So I want to challenge you to grab a backpack on your way out. I want to see all those backpacks gone um, uh, on the way out. Someone can take, can take this one, all right? I want to see all these backpacks so we can bless and encourage other people. Because we believe that we don't want to just um, say that we, that we love God. We want to show that we love God. We don't want to just proclaim it with our words. We want to proclaim it with our actions. Amen, church? All right. Um, all right, let's, let's close with this. I want to share with you a story um, as we wrap up. And uh, I referenced this book last week. I would highly recommend this book. It's called Hell is Real, But I Hate to Admit It by Brian Jones. And I want to read to you a story that he shares in here. He said, Over the years, I've helped hundreds of people come to faith in Christ. Many of them ridiculed me in the process, sometimes ruthlessly. But I persisted the best I could. I even hated some of them. I know that's not something I'm supposed to say as a pastor, but it's what I felt at the time. Some of the people I reached out to treated me like garbage, but somehow I persisted. And do you know what many of those same people told me after they became Christians? Thank you for not giving up on me. Years ago, a woman in our church asked me to visit her dying father in the hospital. For years, this man had rejected Christianity and even made fun of me personally. But despite my years of built-up apprehension and animosity toward this man, I went to see him. When I arrived in his room, I found a different man from the one that I had known. Gone was the bravado. Gone was the glare of defiance that I'd seen so many times. Hooked up to dozens of wires and monitors, the person who spent a lifetime rejecting his daughter's attempts to share her faith now lay in cold silence, staring out the window. For some reason, I expected the circumstances of our meeting to have softened his heart. Deathbeds have a way of doing that to people. But as I drilled down in our conversation, I hit the same skeptical bedrock that I had before. He gave me the same uh, smirks, the same defiance, the same I'm smarter than God attitude. My job was done. He was unmoved and unwilling to talk about spiritual matters. So I said a quick prayer and I headed for the parking lot. But something wouldn't allow me to get on that elevator. This isn't a game, I thought. This person is headed toward eternal separation from God. Are you going to just walk away and leave? What are you ashamed of? The elevator door opened, but I didn't get in. Prompted by the Holy Spirit, I turned around, headed back down the hallway, and walked up to his bedside once again. I'm not leaving you like this. Not today. Not on my watch. He was taken back. Listen, I don't care that you've spent your life making fun of Christians. I don't care about anything you've said or done up to this point. Quite frankly, I think all that has been a show. I can see it in your eyes. Deep down, you want to believe. You just haven't been willing to humble yourself. I spent the next 15 minutes trying every single thing possible to get him to surrender his heart to Christ. 
but no luck. I don't know what I expected. Maybe the gates of heaven to open up and shower angel dust all over the room. I don't know. All I knew was that this guy's heart wouldn't budge. And then I did something I've never done before. I begged him. I literally began begging him to come to Christ. Look, is that what you want? I'm begging you, Frank. I'm literally begging you. You're going to die soon. Maybe today. Maybe tomorrow. I don't know when, but it's soon. I don't want you to go to hell. I'm begging you to give your life to Christ right now, this second. And then something astonishing happened. His eyes started to water. His lips trembled. Years of skeptical defiance melted away as he grabbed my hand. And that's when it happened. He surrendered his heart to Christ. Right there in that room, after years of hurling insults at Christians, and as I stood there, wiping back tears of joy and trying to figure out how I was going to baptize him with all those wires sticking out of him, he pulled my hand and motioned with his eyes that he wanted to say something. He leaned over to, I leaned over to listen, and he whispered in my ear, thank you for coming back for me. And as we both sat there soaking in the magnitude of what was taking place, I started laughing, wiping my eyes, and I said, Frank, after everything you've put me through, I don't know whether I should hug you or sucker punch you. I'm going to ask us to pray. I'm going to ask you to think about the people that you know that don't know Christ. Maybe that's you. I mean, maybe today you don't know Christ, and you would surrender your heart and ask for forgiveness of your sins. Ask him to come into your life. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your amazing, amazing grace. We could try to rationalize away this concept of hell, but we'd be fooling ourselves. God, you are a God of love. You are a God of justice. You are a God of grace. So we believe that you have sent your son Jesus to die on a cross for our sins. This man himself said that he is, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Is anyone listening to this today or watching this, I pray that they would surrender their heart to you. Just simply pray, God, please forgive me of my sin. Please come into my life. Please make me brand new. And God, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, please stir in our heart a desire, God, a boldness, a defiance, that we would, as we're talking about God, that we would raise hell about hell, that nothing would stop us or get in the way. God, please help us to proclaim and shout from the rooftops of your love and your grace. Please work in our hearts right now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.